We're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2, looking at the subject of Lord Jesus Christ being an advocate. I'm not sure if I'm going to make this a two-parter. It very well could be at least a two-parter, but we'll just see how it goes. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, before I go any further and forget, this text in chapter 1, it goes back and it talks about that people do sin. Here it says, if a person sins, I mean, I think we know enough about us and about what the scripture says about us, about humans, that they're going to sin. They will sin. They do sin. And chapter 1, toward the end there, it talks about if you say that you have not sinned or have not sinned, you're a liar and you make him a liar. So it's not like anybody can read this that qualifies to be now in a position of reached perfectionism where they don't sin anymore. I know we've talked to people over the years I have and um, talked to a lady I used to work with that was a Nazarene and uh, asked her, we were talking about sin. And I said, I said, when was the last time you sinned, you think? And she said, she sat there and, it's, you know, let me get back with you. I said, OK. So I, toward the end of the shift, I said, what'd you come up with? Yeah, I think it was about six months ago. <laughs> And I, I might have said, you're a liar, and you just sin right now. You know, I can't remember what I said, but these type people are just, they have no clue about what the law says and about what sin is and about what God requires. But the good news here is I'm dealing with the advocate, the one that represents or speaks for the one that has sinned. So when we look at this, I'm going to look at it in really two parts or in two aspects. We're going to look at Christ as an advocate, him by himself, and then what that means for us to utilize that advocacy. I think right away we'll quickly see the importance of this aspect of uh, salvation in, in both the person and the work of Christ. And we'll see how that this subject it weaves throughout salvation history. When I say salvation history, what I mean is, like for example, you don't have to turn there, but some of you may have this memorized. In Romans 8, it gives the history of salvation. And it starts before time, foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification. Some call this the five golden chain links of grace that starts before time, comes into time, and goes after time. Past, present, and future. That is the full spectrum of salvation. The Trinity is involved, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in that historic, full realm of salvation. And we spend our time looking at those intricate details. And there's even some more aspects of salvation that's not listed in those five things. There's some in between there. And we're even going to mention some today. But the issue of advocacy, Christ being an advocate, is related to past, present, and future in this full spectrum, broad spectrum of salvation. So speaking of the of this issue of timing, we want to go before time and we want to talk about what theologians have called the eternal covenant of grace, which was 
before time. Now, I, later this year, sometime, I do plan on redoing a series that I did 10 years ago. Then it was called uh, Chosen in Christ. I think there were 13 parts to it, and it was about election and predestination, showing mainly the gospel aspects of that, not just some kind of intellectual exercise of, of philosophy and theology and just say, hey, that's neat, and then put it on a shelf. I'm talking about something you can get your hands on that is, that is connected to our assurance, something that is uh, Christ-centered, something that's tied to the gospel. We'll look at it in a way that's tied to the gospel, not some secondary issue or, or an issue that's only for people that have PhDs. We're going to bring it down to where we can handle it and look at the practical outworkings of the importance of election. So we're going to get into that. And why I brought that up is because the eternal covenant of grace would be part of that series. The covenant of grace is something that happened before the foundation of the world. It's related to election. So I'm not going to wear it out today. I'm just going to barely touch on it. And we'll pick it up later in more detail sometime this year. But the language there, the, the title of this section, the eternal covenant of grace, covenant, as most of you know, if you have a covenant, it's related to the idea of a contract where it is legally binding. It has in it promises. It has in it terms and conditions and stipulations. And this one here is a covenant between the Trinity. And you see little bits and pieces of this, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And like I said, we'll go in more detail later in the year. But we want to touch on this and just look at a few scriptures. Look in Acts chapter 13, first of all. We want to look at, first of all, primarily the focus will be between the Father and the Son, not necessarily us. Because in the covenant... There are things between the Father and the Son, and later, we get the benefits later. That's where we come in, when it's in time. But the promises and the conditions and all that between the Father and Son have to do with us. But we're not partakers until later, of course. Let me mention one thing before I forget. This entering into the covenant where Christ is talking and he talks about who, who builds a building that doesn't first sit down and count the cost, figures out some type of a vision for the goals and the expense and the time, and am I qualified to do it? Do I have to hire contractors, etc.? Same with the covenant of grace. In the covenant, when the terms and conditions and promises and stipulations, the contract was laid out, Christ knew what was involved because he is the all-wise God, the eternal word of God. So uh, what I brought that up for is, is that he knowing he volunteered, he was not forced into the covenant. He volunteered for this thing. And another thing, this covenant was primarily just like everything else. It's God word. It's, it's God first. It's God focused first between the father and son. And it's about his glory. His glory is wrapped up in this covenant. And then his love, which we eventually see and experience ourselves. So in chapter 13 of Acts, in verse 32, here's some covenant language. And let me say this too. There are covenants that are made in time with people. We know sometimes covenants with people or with a nation are conditional. 
But this eternal covenant is unconditional. We know the new covenant is unconditional. We've looked at that in the book of Hebrews and other, other books. But in verse 32 it says, And we preach the gospel to you, the promise, notice that, promise, that's, that's part of the covenant, made to the fathers. This God has fulfilled to us, their children, raising up Jesus. Also, it is written in the second psalm, and, and we're going to look at, we're going to go separately in another point to the second psalm and read some of what it's talking about. But it says, you are my son, this day I have begotten you. Now, we looked at what that meant not too long ago when we were in John about this begetting, and it had to do with, with the father declaring who he was, not that he all of a sudden came out of nowhere. He's eternal. So there's a certain point where we're looking at this covenant. We're looking at the decree. And God says, this is the one. I'm declaring this is the one that's going to do this. So he is begotten in that sense. Verse 34. And that he raised him up from the dead. Now, that's part of the promise of the covenant. That he would raise from the dead. No more to return to corruption. He spoke in this way. I will give you the sure mercies of David. See the language there? You're talking about something that's sure and, sure and certain. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, and this is part of the, the covenant language, you shall not allow your Holy One, speaking of Christ, to see corruption, which means he's going to raise from the dead. That's the promise of the covenant. The stipulations are if Christ, if you do this, and do it correctly for these people like we've promised, like we've agreed to, you will raise from the dead. Now, before I go any further, if you know who this person is, this person of Christ, and you know his perfections, you know that he's sovereign. We're going to go into some of his attributes, some of his other attributes later. You know that, in other words, you know he cannot fail. Then you know he's going to be raised because we know as a person, he can't fail. Therefore, we know he won't fail. And what's sure and certain, he's going to raise up because he's going to do this thing right. We're not talking about people here doing this that fail all the time like we do. Like uh, maybe some New Year's resolutions, you know, that you make every year. I, I quit making them. I quit making them. Spiritually speaking, the religious people act like they're not sinners, and you just you know, talk about a free will and say, "Okay, don't sin, stop sinning, do it." See how long that lasts. You could just as soon, if you had boots on, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and levitate. You can't do it, right? So there's a weakness. We have a we have a weakness that this is why we need an advocate. This is why I'm bringing this up. Verse thirty six. For or because after he had served his own generation by the will of God, David fell asleep and many died, and he added to his fathers, and he saw corruption. There was some discrepancy or an argument. Is this promise talking about David? No, it's talking about Christ. And we'll, we'll see some uh, verse a little bit later that shows that. So in other words, David, he's in the grave. Verse 37, but he whom God raised, again, speaking of Christ, saw no corruption. Therefore, be it known to you, men and brothers, that through this one, 
My version has one capital O speaking of Christ. Through this Christ, the forgiveness of sins is announced or declared to you. This is in the gospel, of course. And by him, all who believe in him are justified from all things, notice this, which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. We've talked about over the weeks this comparison and contrast between these two covenants. The old covenant law and the new covenant, everything conditioned on the blood of Christ. Old covenant law, there was no forgiveness in that. None at all. What what they do? They had sacrifices. And the book of Hebrews said those sacrifices never ever took away sin to begin with. They pointed to the one that did in the future. The one that shed the blood of the new covenant in whom there is forgiveness. So that's what he's saying here. So there was covenant language kind of sprinkled throughout there. And we're going to get a little bit more specific. Let's go to Psalm 110. And this is part of some of what they were talking about in some of that Acts text. Who are they talking about, David or Christ? And we'll, we'll see some of this here. Psalm 110.1 The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies as your footstool. So there is there was thoughts. Some people are reading this and they're thinking, okay, who's this talking about? Is he talking about David? Because it was questioned in the Gospels. Who, who's he talking? He says, it's speaking of Christ. It goes on to explain a little further, verse 2. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Zion is always talking about the church, God's people. And it says, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, I've got kind of a cheater version because uh, all the personal pronouns are capitalized. So when it's talking about Christ, it's always capitalized. Your people, and of course the Father also. Your people, talking about a particular people, these are the elect, shall be willing in the day of your power. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation. And there is a day appointed for all the elect to be brought to the Father through Christ. John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and he that comes to me I will no wise cast out. Could read all kind of other verses, and there's some later that I do have jotted down. But the day of his power is the day that he executes the salvation on his people and brings them to life and gives them faith, and they are drawn to him by the power of the gospel. They, in other words, they see it. Finally, the lights are turned on. Yes, I see it. I've been hearing this for a while now. I see it. Verse four: The Lord, and here's here's the covenant language. The Lord has sworn. Now, when you see language like this, you got to stop and say, this is, this is kind of like out of the ordinary. It's not just God saying something. He's in an oath-type atmosphere. He's swearing that something's going to happen. And he gets redundant. He says here, and will not repent. It means he's not going to change his mind. And he says this about Christ. And this is part of him declaring him who he is and what he's going to do. The Father says to the Son, and this is, again, covenant language that deals with Christ before the world began. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Later in Hebrews, it, it explains this Melchizedek character, which is a type of Christ, because Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. 
And Melchizedek, there's no recorded history of who his mom or who his dad was. It like came out of nowhere. So that's the same idea with Christ. Christ is eternal. His birth parents was only the mother, and that didn't affect his deity. So he came out of nowhere in that he was invisible son of God, and he showed up in the flesh miraculously by bypassing the sin that all of us normally would have, that do have. And here he is. He shows up in this body of flesh to be this sacrifice and act like as Melchizedek is a type. He works out this thing of his priesthood, which we're going to be talking about. But that's a that's a covenant promise like that. He swore before the foundation of the world, you're going to be this you're going to be this high priest. So there's nothing stopping this idea. It's going to take place. And we know if there's nothing stopping it, it's going to go to the end. And that priesthood that he deals with those people that he represents as a priest, because a priest always represents somebody else. There's a mediation, a go-between activity there. So there's covenant language there. And, and like I said, when we study the election series, we'll go into a lot more depth. We'll spend a lot of time later. Go to Titus, Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1 and verse 1. There's there's a lot of New Testament texts we could have gone to, but I'm not going to take up all the time with really proving something we've proved in the past and, and something that we plan on looking at very shortly in the, in the weeks or months to come. Paul, uh, Titus 1, 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, in the acknowledging of the truth, which is according to godliness. Notice this. In hope of eternal life, hope meaning confident expectation, of eternal life, which God, notice right here, this is important, this is part of his character attribute, his veracity or truthfulness or faithfulness in telling the truth, which God who cannot lie. This is the God that cannot lie. Go further. He promised before the world began. So think of the idea of the God that cannot lie and take it back to the verse we looked well ago. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. He won't change his mind. So you start to see a, this domino compounding preponderance of uh, language and people start hearing this covenant language. They're thinking this is God who when he puts his eternal mind to something and he backs it up with his sovereign purpose, his power, and now the language of he can't lie, he's swearing an oath, he's making promises, right away our faith should get, should be invested in that. And we start to see that language. We're starting to see he's using this language that's removing any doubt that this is not going to take place and be accomplished in an effective, effectual, successful, victorious, completed way. Now, we should love reading this stuff. It's like if, we have a, if we've messed up and we forget we have an advocate and we start reading these things, and this is why I brought this up. This is related to his advocacy, him representing us and being our counsel. You could say lawyer. When we read these things, this is connected to this issue right here. Notice verse 3. It says, it talks about that this promise was before the world began, but it's revealed in his word in our times, in our own times. It's proclaimed right now. Paul's talking with which 
I was entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Now, we talked about the uh, last few weeks about how that the covenant before the foundation of the world took place. And when Christ came in time, it matched what that covenant said. In other words, he did what that covenant said he would do. And then the message that we tell matches what he did and what the covenant said. So that matches. And then in our minds, what we believe, we believe that record in the gospel. So the covenant, the performance of it by Christ, the message, and our belief of the message all are harmonious. They all match. There's no deviation in between those things. So you could just as well say when a person believes, they're not just believing the gospel. They're believing that what Christ did is actually recorded in the gospel. And they're believing that that matches what was planned to do in the covenant. So that, in other words, there's no contradictions, no inconsistencies. And, and when we see these things being consistent, consistency is truth. You know what I mean? If somebody says, your story is not consistent, you know what that means? You're lying. <laughs> Something's wrong. You're contradicting. This can't be true. So when we see this fluid consistency throughout, again, the, hit, the whole history of salvation, it should bring comfort, it should bring faith, and uh, settle our uh, anxieties down about whether or not this advocate can do this job. Now, God's character, his whole character is involved here. I'm going to say there's like at least 20 messages on sermon audio. Years ago, we did the character attributes of God. We went through them. Maybe even 25. There's a lot. But we can just name a few. God's character is involved in this covenant. His attribute of faithfulness. He's faithful, first of all, to himself. He's not going to do something that's going to violate who he is. Like, for example, the God that cannot lie. He's not going to lie. He's faithful to himself. He is faithful after he sets up this covenant and it starts going. He's faithful to fulfill those promises that he said would be fulfilled if Christ fulfills those conditions of those promises. In other words, down here at the end, he's faithful to give out the merit and the fruits and all the it says that we're joint heirs with Christ of everything. All these spiritual blessings, they're dealt out by God because he promised they would be if Christ did his job. So he's faithful to give those to his people. He's unchangeable. The fancy theological term is immutable. It just means he doesn't change. So he's not fickle like we are. We change our mind all the time. We change our plans. People are always reacting. I thought you said, yeah, I know. Just like I mentioned a while ago, some bad habits uh, that I have. Yeah, I know. I, that was my purpose. But I not only changed, but I failed. Uh, I pretty much lied because I said I wasn't going to do it after this point. But righteous, he is righteous. This is one of the chief things that he is. We talked about the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, how that the demands of God were absolute perfection and righteousness, the standard of the law. Well, he himself is that. And when Christ came, part of the covenant said that you must establish a righteousness that will make your people righteous. 
so that when I declare them justified, I can do it without getting my hands dirty. And it's not a lie. They actually are because of what you did, because that righteousness was given to them. So we're not going to pretend. We're not going to play. We're, going to, we're not going to say, I'm declaring you people righteous when you're not. The value of that work actually made them righteous. So when he says you're righteous, it's true. And it works out on the, on the scales of the balance of law and justice because it was fulfilled and satisfied by Christ. There was a payment made, so it's real. His holiness. We know that Scripture talks about how that God is separate from us and how that uh, you cannot look upon him and live. That's why we need a mediator. And we know that he's of too pure eyes to behold evil and, and let it slide. He must punish sin. So again, the value of Christ being an advocate is, is there. you know, And that's what we need. Somebody to, to represent us and to, to talk for us and to be our counsel in between us and other people. So we could go on and on with the character attributes of God. We could do a series on that in relation just to the advocacy of Christ. Thirdly, under this point, the appointments in the covenant related to advocacy. The Father appointed Christ to be several different things. Surety. And this is another thing we'll look at when we look at election. The Father appointed Christ to be the surety of these chosen people. The surety has to do with I think the phrase is, is mercantile. It has to do with merchandise or, or financial accounting language. It has to, in other words, with money. It has to do with money, buying things. When a person is a surety, they represent the person they're a surety for, uh, sort of like a cosigner. And if the person they're cosigning for doesn't pay the bill, then the person that's the surety has to legally pay the bill. So Christ is the surety of his people. He's the guarantee that it will get paid. He is also, and that's related to advocacy. He is also a mediator. He's the stand between or go between God and man. That's related to advocacy. Another phrase that's used is he is their representative. He is their legal stand-in. So when something is required of God's people, the Father looks to Christ. Very similar way to the surety thing. He is their substitute. He is actually really stands in for them so that they don't have to take the wrath of God. He took it in their place. So there again is a standing in or a representing or a standing up for or being the mediator and the counsel for both parties, Christ being the word, he's able to counsel, of course, pretty good, pretty well. And we studied about the word word can be interpreted logic. We know for a lawyer to be a good lawyer, he must be logical. He must be able to win arguments. Christ is the best at it. He's the eternal wisdom. He is all-knowing, so he can, he can operate in that capacity. No problem. He is, as we had just read a second ago, he's the high priest. And there again, priesthood is like a go-between. A priest represents a person to God. That's why the, the idea of current priesthood 
like in these different denominations, the Catholic Church and others, that idea of priesthood is, is an abomination because Christ is the priest. And the old old priesthood is, is done away with. So it's it's garbage. So this eternal covenant and all these appointments of Christ to be surety, mediator, representative, substitute, high priest, all these things are in connection with first Godward between the Father and Son, and then to these people, the elect. And this is the point in time before the foundation world where, and, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time in our election series of just dealing with that basic idea of the how and why that these people were chosen. And they were chosen before the foundation of the world and given to the Father. He turned them over to Christ and says, they're your responsibility now. And that is when Christ took on the obligation. Now, we always say that mercy and grace, these things are not obligated. But there's a certain point in before this time where they weren't, and then Christ signed up, and he, then he became obligated because of his faithfulness. I said, I'm going to do this for these people. Now I've obligated myself to them. But we don't know that when we come into the world. We didn't even know we were the elect until after the fact. Then we see, oh, I see Christ obligated himself to me in the covenant. And it's not like the, the resisting idea, like uh, those that have this thing against God saying he must choose everybody. He has to have mercy on everybody. And they make him obligated to. That, that destroys the definition of mercy. Mercy is unobligated. But after God sovereignly promises to give mercy, then he obligates himself through the mediator. And there's no contradiction or there's no problem there. No contradiction in what he did there. Look at Psalm 2 for the last text in this section. Psalm 2. Some more covenant language. And this is uh, what was quoted in Acts 13 while ago. There's a whole message on sermon audio of this, this text here. I spent 45 minutes on just these three verses, if you want to look that up. Sermon audio, you can do text searches and topic searches. Verse 6, Psalm 2. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Again, Zion referring to the church, God's people. And here's the covenant language. I will declare the decree. You know, a decree is, is like a sovereign declaration of this is what I'm going to do. This is my will. This is my purpose. This is the way it's going to be. And, and in old times, during the Dark Ages, the Renaissance, sovereign kings did things in nations. They would have this seal. And they would melt whatever, some type of a wax or some. And then they would stamp their seal, and it was like the official stamp of their decree. This is, you can believe this because this is from the king. Boom, stamp their stamp. And when people saw that, it's like, it's the official seal, and we better listen to what the king said. Same idea here, but this is Almighty God. I've declared the decree. This is going to happen, in other words. The Lord has said unto me, you are my son this day. Have I begotten you? And again, this, this idea of begetting is in a declarative way in reference to this whole covenant. This is the one that's going to do this. Announcing it to angels 
and then later it's it comes down through the word of God preached in the gospel and everybody you know even now gets to read it here's the language between the father and son about these people that are being chosen and given to Christ the father says to Christ says ask of me and I shall give you the heathen for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. So Christ, he agrees and volunteers in this covenant. And he says, okay, yeah, give me the people. And he, he signs up for obliging himself, obligating himself to these people that the father has set his affection on. He says, first, Godwardly, this is your will. You love these people. I'm going to save these people. And in the process of saving these people, you and I both will be glorified like no other way that can ever happen, past, present, or future. The glorification, the magnification of who we are uh, as God, our character attributes, are going to be magnified and glorified in no other way than this event that's going to take place. That we plan throughout all eternity that's going to come down and, and the government of salvation is placed on you, Christ, on your shoulders. It's up to you. In the fullness of time, the spotlight's going to be on you. I've set you forth in preeminence. You're the one. This is the one. John the Baptist came later and said, this is the one. All focus. The whole world was created for this space of time for this to happen to this person, to die for his people and glorify the Father. So it's, a, it's the biggest deal of the whole history of the universe. I've made this statement before, and I stick to it. The world was created so Christ could die. Hands down, that's it. If you read this scripture and do the math, sum it up, it says that. The world was created so Christ could die. Now, if you think that that idea that I just said fits with the idea that Christ died for everybody and the majority of people are going to hell, you're thinking, who's running this thing? This makes no sense. That That is a failure. If Christ died for all and the majority go to hell, how much of this other stuff is a lie that we've covered so far that we thought we could count on? The Lord swore and he won't repent, you know, or the God that cannot lie or the covenant that's related to the sure mercies of David or anything to do with it. It just like starts falling apart. I'm going to stop right there. The next section is the person and the work of Christ. We're going to touch on his sinlessness, the fact he was born under the law, the fact that he was uh, kept the law perfectly, why he kept the law, talking about paying the debt or the penalty that we owed, and we're going to talk about satisfaction and the sufficiency of his payment and his merit, which all, of course, qualify him as being a perfect advocate. I'm just scrolling down here giving you what's a, kind of a preview. We're going to talk about justification specifically and his advocacy. There's a big section of that. And then lastly, we're going to talk about his, his intercession, which means him as a high priest on the throne praying for his people, exercising his advocacy, praying now, even now for his people. We'll pick that up. At least this week's message was uh, 10 minutes, 12 minutes shorter than last week, so I had a little mercy on you. Any questions or comments? All right, you can be dismissed.